brethren, as we grow, we know, and I've mentioned this to you many times, Satan knows this too. And Satan does not like wherever God is working. So Satan will strike. We know that. The bigger we are, the more powerful the work is, the more likely it is that Satan the devil will try to get after us and block that growth. He will cry to divide, confuse, discourage God's people. He comes at all of us in a different ways at different times, but he knows exactly how to get at us, and he will try to get under our spiritual armor, so to speak, and strike at us in any way he can. And we do need to realize that and be ready for it because we are living in the very, very exciting times. And I think they're going to be pretty, frankly, scary times and perhaps anguishing times as we see people dying all around us and some of our own brethren falling away and some of our own brethren being beaten up or thrown in jail or persecuted. So it won't all be fun times. But it will be exciting times and dramatic times. And we're living into the most dramatic times in human history. When you read the book of Revelation and when you read Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21, why in Mark 13 it says it will be more awful times than it has ever been since the beginning of creation. There's never been a time since the beginning of creation that's going to be so dramatic and so awful as the time just ahead of us. I say just, it may be another 15 to 25 years. We hope it's sooner than that. We hope the tribulation comes sooner because we hope Christ comes sooner. But we can't set dates, and we've seen that whenever we try to set exact dates, it doesn't work out. But these things certainly are coming together in biblical prophecy, and we understand that. And brethren, we here in this room, and you brethren around the world who hear this, may God guide you and bless you all in the churches everywhere at Perth, Australia, and Cape Town, and London, and up in Toronto, and wherever you are. We pray that God will bless you and move you, and we all need to be drawn closer to God because we are living in a very unusual times, and we're going to need His help. Turn with me back to First Peter, if you would. First Peter chapter 4. And God warns us here directly, frankly, when you understand it about what's just ahead. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial. It's interesting that God uses the term fiery trial. It's not going to be a nice nice trial. It really isn't. It's not going to be some Indians come over the hill and a couple of, shoot us up, a couple of settlers and the rest of the wagon train goes on and so on. It's going to be cities blown to bits. Human beings blown to bits, loved ones and unconverted relatives dying here and there, some of God's own people suffering part of it, because we know that the ancient Israelites had to suffer the first of the plagues, and then God protected them later. The fiery trial. Don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. No, it's not a strange thing. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, when you and that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. So, brethren, as you get on your knees in the morning, and I hope you did especially since this is the Sabbath day, and pray to God and drink in of his word, you are God's people, and God looks down on you, and you are suffering Christ's sufferings if you're doing it in Christ's service because you are a Christian. We don't all have our trials come because we're doing Christ's service. Sometimes we get in trouble just because of our own human nature or human mistakes. But as time goes on, we may be doing it for Christ's sake and for his suffering. If you are in reproach for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. So we do want to glorify God even in times of trial. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a busybody in other people's matters. Don't let's go around and be busybody and butting in or causing trouble. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, if you suffer that way as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment. And brethren, judgment is going to come on us. 
And I tell you sincerely, when I think back to 1949 and 51, and then when I started out on the baptizing tours, coast to coast and up into Canada in 1951 and 1952, I deeply thought, I could tell you before God, we were going to have terrible persecution. And we had a few guns pointed at us, and a few people tried to run us off and cussed us. Some of them had very creative language, (laughs) but they did not hurt us. No one was ever shot. No one was ever thrown in jail or beaten up. And for years, I thought maybe I wouldn't get married because I thought, well, we're going to, Herman Hay and Raymond and I, we're going to go around and conduct baptizing tours and help write the articles and help Mr. Armstrong do the work. And I thought we probably can't get married. And yet as time goes on, I was found myself pastoring a church up in Portland, Oregon, and I was all alone and had no one to cook for me. Even Tressie was not there, Mr. McNair's daughter. (laughs) And my daughter Elizabeth has been visiting me by the recently, and I sure appreciate it, cooking for me, but now she's back home with her husband in Houston. But I began to realize maybe I should get married after all. And some women asked me some particular, I won't talk about it now, but questions about uh, feminine problems. And I thought, what do I know about that? I need a wife to help answer some of those questions. But time just went on, and we had nice college dances. I see Mrs. Zapardi is up there, and we had, you know, nice dances and parties and spokesman clubs and church dances, and everything was good. And we had a little bit of persecution once in a while, bad letters coming in and people cussing Mr. Armstrong out over the phone, and I got some of them because he had some of us young men helping with those things. But the time is going to change, and you're going to have to have faith in God beyond what you've ever had in your life, and you're going to have to have courage. And as I've said, the time is coming when you and I, and I'll be called to account too, I know, we may have to face a terrible trouble. We may find ourselves in jail or before a court or somewhere bad where we're threatened by a bunch of bad guys out apart from the police. And we may be there all alone. And no one will be with us. No one. It'll be us and the big sky and God. And we'll have to know and know that we know that Almighty God is there. And put our faith and trust in the invisible God. We've got to know that before this judgment begins. Judgment will now begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? He's going to test us and try us. Now the righteous one, if the righteous one, is scarcely saved. We're not saved by some great wide margin because we're so good. We're barely saved because of God's mercy. That's the only reason we'll be saved. Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good. So let's do good all we can. Why? As to a faithful Creator. I've tried to serve God, and I've certainly not done it perfectly, but I have tried to serve God for 64 and a half years since my baptism in December 1949. So I've been able to walk with God to a certain degree during that period of time, and I've been a very intense person. And sometimes my intensity has frightened people, but they come to realize at least I'm sincere, even though I'm intense and too pushy sometimes. But I mean it, and I meant it when I was baptized, and I was willing to die. And many times I had to face some guns or some men with clubs or threats, and I came through all right. But other times, all alone, I would let down and get very selfish and vain and have bad things and be very selfish. We all are tried and tested in different ways. Let's submit to God and do good as to a faithful creator. God is faithful. And in the 64 and a half years I have been baptized and tried to walk with God, I have seen that God has never turned away from me He never turned away from Mr. Armstrong. He never turned away from Mrs. Armstrong. He never turned away from Mr. Raymond McNair. He never turned away from others. Some of us have turned away from him from time to time and partly did not do perfectly. But I've seen how he never turned on us unless we turned on him. That's the only time I could mention some who later turned away totally from God. But as long as people were trying... 
God never, ever turned away. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And I've seen that and know and I know that I know that. So we've got to have that kind of faith in the invisible God. God wants us to trust in Him as a faithful. God is faithful and trust in Him as a faithful Creator. And we're going to need that faith in the invisible God. And that God has got to become very real to us in the times of test that are just ahead. Notice in Hebrews chapter 10, brethren, turn if you would at this point to chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. I'm going to get a little bit of this tea here. I probably talk louder than I need to, but I always like to be sure you're hearing me. I'm very conscious of people not hearing, so I'd rather talk too loud than too softly and hope they don't turn it down. Let it come through loud and clear, because some of you older people need to hear. I know that. In Hebrews 10, notice here beginning in verse 31. Hebrews 10:31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were eliminated, you were endured a great struggle with suffering. A lot of those brethren had to go through a lot of suffering. They were the original church in Jerusalem he's writing to here. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations. They were there, some of them, when Stephen was stoned to death. Some of them may have still been alive that saw Christ die and his suffering on the cross. And they went through things like that. And partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me, Paul writes. A lot of the great commentaries are not sure who wrote this. Well, I'm sure who wrote this. I may I should write that article. Seven proofs Paul wrote Hebrews. There are about seven basic proofs showing that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. He talks about the, how he was in chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. God is keeping our reward in heaven. He's going to bring it back here, all the rest of the Bible says, but it's there now in God's presence. He's going to give us great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Don't give up and quit. You have need of endurance. It's so easy to turn aside when the first little bit of persecution comes. Some of you will fall away. I don't dislike you. I don't even know who I'm talking about. I just know that of the 2,000 students that I taught over the years and the tens of thousands of people I preached to, often 12 to 14,000 at Big Sandy and almost as many at Lake of the Ozarks and Poconos and elsewhere at the big feast sites, Tens of thousands of them fell away. And I was giving some of the same kind of sermons I gave to, gave to you that I gave to them. They fell away. So people do fall away. You have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, he who is coming will come. Yes, he is going to intervene, brethren. He promises to do that. And will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. You're going to have to have a degree of faith and courage beyond what many of you have ever had before. A lot of you are spoiled. You've never had a terrible trial. You've never been beaten up. You've never spent time in jail. You've never had some terrible trial yet. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but to, of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We are to be those who believe, who put our faith and trust in the invisible God and come to know and know that we know that God, so that that God that we cannot see is real to us. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. God is invisible. We've got to learn to know Him and prove that. Verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God will reward us if we diligently, not half-heartedly, but diligently seek him. And he tells us that, of course, throughout the Bible, 
over and over again in various ways. Notice, brethren, how God wants us to go all out at whatever we do. Yet we know, brethren, that thousands of our brethren in the former worldwide church that God gave up, thousands of them, they were discouraged, they were disillusioned, and they became divided among themselves, divided from Mr. Armstrong, divided by various ideas about the truth in various ways. Thousands fell away during the 70s, the 1980s, and the 1990s, and of course many since then, but most of them back at that time. It was a time of hurt, a time of disillusionment, a time of trouble. 1972 was supposed to be the end of a 19-year cycle and the beginning of the tribulation. 1972 came and went, and there wasn't a tribulation, and people began to give up and fall away. Ted's problems began to come out, so people fell away too at that very year. They had very sense of disillusionment about various things. 1974 came along, and 30 ministers of 3,000 brethren here on the East Coast fell away. A number right here in this area fell away. I think Mr. League knows about that, probably knows some of the people by name that fell away who were here at that time. The 1974 rebellion, 30 ministers of 3,000 people turned against Mr. Armstrong because we had some smart lake ministers who had their own desire to start their own thing and exalt themselves. And Mr. Armstrong was making some mistakes because he wasn't handling a particular problem as quickly as perhaps he should have, but he was still there. He was preaching the truth. He was doing the work. And he was not immoral and doing something bad himself. So they fell away. And thousands of them fell away. I was over in Britain as a deputy chancellor, but I was brought back and I was asked to stay. And I stayed about one month away from my wife so I could make calls and handle things and help settle things down during that horrible crisis of 1974. Think about it. 3,000 people. We only have about 10 or 11,000 attending with us nowadays and probably have around 11 at the feast this autumn. Of 3,000. That'd be more than one out of four. A lot of people fell away back at that time. They were disillusioned. They weren't sure what to do. But they were very weak. I knew some of them. The ones that fell away were very weak. Some of the young ministers have been smart aleck. One of the ministers among them, one of the leaders among them, been stealing second and third tithe. We knew that already. Some of them had their girlfriends. They had their beer steins in their basements and had their hogs, their big Harley Davidsons. They were rolling around in black jackets and acting like a bunch of hippies. They were purged out. God purged them out in that way as they rebelled against God's apostle. Often the ones that held the church together back then were not the young smart aleck students. They were the older local elders who had not been to Ambassador College, but had had to struggle to obey God, to keep the Sabbath, to keep their family together, and obey God without a salary from the work. They were some of the main ones who helped hold the church together. And some of our older ministers, like Mr. League, hung on, and others, but some of the younger hot shots fell away. They were more sparkling in their personality. They were more interesting. They were kind of fun, fun folks, but they fell away. They did not have the spiritual depth to endure when trials came along. Will you? In 1976, why Raymond Cole and a bunch of others left, I guess Paul Royer and a lot of other older ministers left, that in 1978 Ted was kicked out and Ron Dart and others went along with him. And then in 1979 we had the receivership. And again, thousands fell away. They were all mad because of perceived problems of Mr. Armstrong. And I looked into those problems very thoroughly, and Mr. Armstrong was not implicated. And finally, the whole state of California completely exonerated us, and we had not had what they were claiming. But some dissidents who were trying to overthrow Mr. Armstrong got this suit going. And again, people did not have a depth of faith and trust in God. It shook their faith, and they became disillusioned. And I had ministers, one older minister that I'd known for decades by that time, cursed and swore at me. I was over the ministry, the director of the ministry worldwide, for seven months during that time. I had others yell at me, and he not only yelled, but he cussed. 
use God's name in vain and all kinds of, you know, damn and hell and everything you could think of and talking about blankety-blank Armstrong and Raider, I finally had to tell him, you can't talk that way about Mr. Armstrong and be a minister. Well, I don't care blank, blank, blank. And I finally had to fire him on the phone. I couldn't let that go on and on and on. He wasn't about to back down at all. They were filled with rage and self-will. No desire to repent. No desire to make peace. They were just all upset emotionally and weren't willing to come out. We were going to pay their way and talk to them and go through it with them and the whole thing and explain, let them look around headquarters. But they were gripped by Satan the devil and they were in a very rotten satanic attitude and so they fell away. And I love some of them and I was sorry. But we had that in 1979. And then in 1986, Mr. Armstrong died. And then we had a bad gang come in, not just one bad guy, a whole bad gang. Some of them, those who had been part of the liberals in the previous generation, suddenly were resurrected. One big tall guy who got so sick when I was put over the ministry, he suddenly got well again. And he, he began to join the opposition and go liberal big time. And others joined in that had not been dealt with yet. And so they began to change the doctrines. And some of you called us. What's going on, Mr. Meredith? And they wanted to know what to do. And discouraged people. It looked like God had forsaken His church. Well, God did not forsake His church. As I look back, I'm a pile of dirt. There's nothing special about me except I've been willing to hang on. But I don't have the charisma and the mental capacity and the tremendous oratorical ability of Mr. Armstrong and Ted and many others. And I know that. But these people just turned away and they had no reason to turn away and they just simply were attacking Mr. Armstrong about nothing and they, they were not willing to look at the big picture because the work was still being done. And then when the work stopped, we thought it was finished and because I was certainly learned lessons and tried to learn lessons of humility. It did not occur to me that God was really going to revive the work through me and it would be that, but God did do that. And we started this work. How long after the apostasy of the autumn of 1989 where it first began to come out and then 1992 where they came out of the autumn of 1992 with the God is booklet and then later announced a whole change in healing, then a whole change in the Sabbath, the holy days, everything else. It was a matter of weeks. Some of you had to wait five or ten weeks. Some of you had to wait 15 or 25 weeks or more to find out what was happening. But within weeks, we were back on the air again over KIEV Glendale and a station in Arkansas and begin to put out a little paper, we called it a magazine, and got the work going. Literally within weeks after some of this apostasy began, God had not forsaken His church, but He did test people for two, three, five months before they could find out what was happening. He was still there. The work was being revived. And we got it going. And we're here. We're going to stay here. And we're going to do the work of God. So we're grateful for what God has done. But believe me, people have been tried and tested in those times after Mr. Armstrong died. God allowed it so that people had to go right back to the beginning and reprove to themselves what is the truth. What can we be sure of? And then where should we be? And that was good for everybody because it made them prove and reprove what they believed so they could be more sure of it than ever. But beside that, brethren... We're not only going to have to know now where the truth is, and many of you know that or you wouldn't be here, but now in the next few years, and I'm not trying to set a date, but if I see world events, the cloud, the storm clouds are gathering and things are picking up steam, I can see it could be within two to four years we're going to have persecution. It may start sooner than two more years, but it could come big time, and I want you to be ready. And I want all of you to begin to develop a spirit of faith and courage beyond what you've ever had before. You're going to need that. You're going to desperately need that in the years just ahead of us because people can easily turn aside because they doubt in God. And this whole world is now going lawless. They're having a whole spirit of rebellion against the idea of a real God, as you know, 
lawlessness is cascading around the world, as they're saying on one judge after the other across the United States and some of the legislatures, men can marry men and women can marry women, and pretty soon they're going to let animals marry women and men, and they're going to go whole hog. Yes, they will. They're starting in that direction. And we're going to go that way, and people will put up with it. The mainstream churches are saying it's okay, and they'll perform those weddings. The mainstream churches of this land, supposedly Christian churches, that's shocking to me. I know that's not shocking to some of the young people here, some of the young people in Britain and Canada and Australia. It, that attitude's been over there a long time, and among some of us here in the States a long time. But for someone who's lived a long time, that would have been talked about, talked about, or thought about 30 or 60 years ago. It would have been regarded as absolute insanity, which it is. But at any rate, we've allowed those things to happen right in the so-called Christian churches. So this is going to bring persecution on us as we speak out against that. And we're going to be tested in our faith in the trials that are coming so we don't fall in with this same thing to avoid trouble. We're going to have trouble, but we've got to be willing to preach the truth and do the work regardless of trouble. We're not going to go out and look for it, but we certainly have got to know that it's coming and trust in God and put our trust in God beyond maybe what we've ever done. Back in Hebrews chapter 3, notice Hebrews chapter 3 at verse 12 here, Paul writes, Brethren, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Notice the way the Apostle Paul was inspired to write this. An evil heart of unbelief. That's interesting. God calls it an evil heart of unbelief. God hates the attitude of His creator, created beings, His children who won't even trust in Him. An evil heart of unbelief in those who depart from the living God. But exhort one another daily. Encourage John and Jack and Joanne and Georgian and all you young men and women. And say, well, let's pray together. Let's get close to God. Let's hang in there. Exhort one another daily while it's called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is very tricky. It sneaks up on you before you realize it. For we have become partakers of Christ. If, it's a big if, we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And confidence, of course, involves faith. We've got to have that confidence and keep that confidence. While it is said today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion when ancient Israel turned away from God. For who having heard rebelled, back then He's talking about, indeed was it not all. Brethren, this is interesting. Think about it. Who turned away from God? Everybody, only two men, as you know, Joshua and Caleb, were allowed to go into the promised land except the millions, three million or so Israelites. Out of some three million people, only two men stood up and said, we're going to stay with God. Two out of three million, all, in a sense, fell away. Was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses, now with whom was he angry forty years was it not with those who sinned? Why? Because they couldn't believe in God. They didn't trust their Creator. He'd, he'd perform awesome miracles. And the next day, the minute they didn't have enough food or water for a few hours, they start to gripe and moan. Well, I don't like this, and I'm having trouble here. And the ministers are giving me a hard time, or I'm not making enough, or I don't have a window with an office, or whatever it is people gripe about. You know what I mean. People find things to gripe about. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? And, of course, the promised land was a type of the kingdom of God. But to those who did not obey, they did not obey God. They did not do what he said. They got into idolatry, and they got into Sabbath-breaking. As Mr. Armick Strong explained so often, the two big sins of ancient Israel were idolatry and Sabbath-breaking. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now, I put a circle around the word obey in verse 18 and then a line down in a circle around unbelief. Those who did not obey and those because of unbelief. It's the same thing. If you don't believe in God and have genuine faith, you will not obey God. 
Genuine faith equals active obedience equals spiritual love. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. 1 John 3, 4. That's an equation. Uh, I'm sorry, 1 John 5, 3. That's your 1 John 5, 3. I used to give that in epistles class. Living faith equals spiritual love equals obedience. They all tie in together. It has to be living faith where you do what God says. So they could not enter in who did not obey so they could not enter in because of unbelief. Disobedience and unbelief equal the same thing when you get down to it. If you totally trust in God, you will be willing to do what He says. You won't be perfect in it. You'll slip along the way, but you'll be walking that way of life. You'll mean it. It'll be your whole being. You'll be trying to go that way. So that's the, what it's saying right here. And we need to really understand. Now, brethren, let's turn, if you would, to Luke 18. The Gospel of Luke, and I'm going to turn to chapter 18 of Luke, one you're familiar with. I hope all of us are familiar with this particular chapter. <clears throat> then Jesus spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not to lose heart. We ought to be praying continually two or three times a day on our knees every single day and perhaps dozens of times through the day, just in our own mind, asking God, guide us, be with us, help me do this, help me do that, to walk with God all day long. Saying, this parable, there was a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow, and she came saying, avenge me of my adversary, and this judge would not do anything for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not regard fear God, nor regard man. So he wasn't very religious, obviously, but he was not a monster. He didn't try to hurt, hurt the old lady. He thought she's just going to keep coming and she'll just wear me out. So he said, she's just going to wear me out so finally I'm going to have to hear what she says and then I'm going to have to avenge her. And then the Lord said, verse 6, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall not... In other words, if God, the just would do, a judge would do this, how much more will God do this? And shall not God avenge his own elect? God's elect, how much more will he hear them? Who are them? Those who cry out day and night. Those are the elect. And brethren, some of us in the church, we come on the Sabbath and we have a quick prayer in the morning or night. And we studied the Bible for maybe 10 minutes a day or every other day or something. But we're not walking with God. We're not feeding on this book. God is kind of secondary in our lives. Other things crowd out the most important things that there is. The elect cry out night and day to him, though he bear along with them. Verse 8, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. When the time does come, people are going to be shocked at how quickly some of these things start to happen, one after the other, after the other, after the other. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And as some of the commentaries point out, it's quite emphatic here. The emphasis is that Christ is saying very few people are going to have real faith when the Son of Man comes. And when is that? He's talking... Obviously, about our time, isn't it? The time of the end. When Americans have had two or three TV sets, they have two or three cars, they have plenty of money, they want to go out and drink beer and smoke cigarettes or drink whiskey, and they just have a good time. They're not used to hard times. They're not used to seeking God. The religion's kind of gone out of the window. God is not real to them. So... He's going to come to this earth and he's going to find very, very few people with real faith, real faith and trust in the great God of creation. So we want to really understand that's a very serious thing with God. Notice Romans now, chapter 10, verse 17. Romans 10 and verse 17. Again, a scripture that I think is a memory scripture. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
as you drink into this book, the Bible, and feed on Christ, as it says back in John chapter 6, verse 57, feed on this book, drink into this book, you will develop faith. Dwight L. Moody, the famous preacher, said, I prayed for faith and prayed for faith, and faith never came. But I finally started reading the Bible a lot. Then faith began to come. And it does take reading the Bible, not just prayer alone. So one of the ways to develop faith, take your notes, those taking notes, I'm going to give you seven ways to develop faith. One is studying this book. And I don't mean just reading it carelessly, I mean studying it. Go over it, think about it, mark it, maybe go back over what you read at the end of the study period, then the next day go over that and then start and read something else. I used to go over Romans, for instance, I'd read the first two or three chapters carefully and mark them, then the next, then at the end I'd skim what I marked, then the next day I'd go back over the highlights and then I'd read chapters four, five, and six and mark them and try to drill it in my mind the meaning of this book the meaning of Matthew, the meaning of various books. I didn't learn them perfectly, but I was learning and learning quickly when I was a young man and knew nothing when I came to Ambassador College. Virtually nothing. I knew, well, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so, you know, the old Protestant ideas. Very little of actual depth. I didn't understand. God had not called me yet. So I began to study. And as you study and study, as Mr. Armstrong did during that six months of intensive study and prayer, that he talks about, he literally saturated his being with this book, studying it and building faith in that. The second way, of course, is to meditate. And often we've left that out. I used to leave that out too much. And now I've learned as you study, take a few minutes later and then later through the day to sort of think over what you've studied, to think what does this really mean? How far have I come? What are the mistakes I've been making? How can I? Not someone else, not the other guy. How can I personally do better? How can I personally do better? Meditate on various aspects of the Bible, of world events, of prophecy, of human nature, of your own human nature, and the lessons you've learned and the lessons you see in others around you. Meditate and meditate on the meaning of this book. Thirdly, of course, you pray. Get down on both knees when you can and lift up your hands to God, great God of creation, and talk to Him, pour out your heart to Him, start out praising God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You start your prayer hallowing God's name and thanking Him for all the things He's given you, for your wife, your children, your family, your home, your job. You have enough to eat, enough to wear, all the things so many people in the world don't have. You have a hundred things you can thank God for, all your friends, his blessing on the work, his intervention in human affairs. Go down the list and thank God, worship God, adore God. Pour out your heart to God and develop an attitude of love and worship and adoration for God as you pray. Then you begin to ask for his will to be done and for his kingdom to come and for your part to help you overcome and grow. And then at the end of the prayer, praise his name again at the end for yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory, forever and ever and ever. Amen. You talk to God that way in your prayer. You have short prayers throughout the day. And you walk with God by having your hand in God's hand, so to speak, spiritually, so that you're close to Him and He becomes very real to you. And you see that indeed He has intervened. He does intervene. He does guide your life for good. And you'll see that until you know and you know that you know that. I lost my wife Margie 38 years ago to cancer. And it hurt me and I've told you that. I had to go on without her for about a year and a half until I found Cheryl and married her, which I was very grateful. But I realized that maybe it was God's will to teach me certain lessons. I don't think Margie needed to learn any lessons, but I needed to learn certain lessons. And God softened me and helped me through that process and with a different set of personalities as I got married again, and that was good for me. God allowed Cheryl to die for whatever reason more recently, but she was near her 68th birthday, and as I've explained before, we don't all live to exactly 70. You look in the Bible, and many of God's servants were cut off. You remember how God gave uh, 
uh, my name, I'm going to blank on some basic name I've always known, but this king, he gave him 15 more years. You think, wow, he must have been an old man when he died. God, remember, he cried out to God, and God gave him 15 more years. How old was he when he died? 54. You look it up. When he prayed, when that first happened, he was 39. So he was given 15 more years, and he died at age 54. So they didn't all live to be 70. King David, 3,000 years ago, died 70, old and full of years. And here I am, 80, going on 84, almost 14 years older than King David. And some of you will look at me and say, yeah, you're really old and full of years. That's right. But you see what I mean. God has blessed us. So if I've had some, one of my loved ones die who's almost 70, that's not strange. And I have to realize that even though it hurts. And if I die, I don't want one single one of you to give up. Because I've been giving about 14 years beyond what King David was given, a man after God's own heart. I've already been given that. I have no argument with God at all. That's my life is his life. It's in his hands. And if he wants to give me another 8 or 10 years, my endocrinologist said I might live 8 or 10 more years if I take care of myself. And I hope that I will if I can serve you. If, I, if God gives me the strength, I will declare his strength to this generation, another eight or ten years. But that's up to him. He knows what's best. And I've seen that, brethren. I have seen that. And so if I would pass from the scene and younger men would come along and do more, maybe it would be good for you to have their different personalities and a change of pace, and some of them would accomplish more because they are younger and have more expertise in certain ways, and it would be better for the work. But if I carry on and I'm able to be the spirit point, and to make the big decisions. And if that's better, then I will let Christ figure that out. He's got to figure that out. And you need to understand that. Your life is God's life. When you were baptized, you gave your life to God. And you came up, you belong to Christ. It is Christ's life now, not your life. My life is Christ's life. And so if Christ chooses to let me go to sleep, you don't say Christ will kill you. He doesn't have to kill me. He's just let the natural course of events take place, if you follow me. God's not killing someone when they're old. He lets the natural course of events take place. And he's not killing someone when they're young, either 65 or 67, as many of our dear ladies in the church have been when they died recently. He's just letting them get close to age 70, and some people die 5 or 10 years before that, and some people die 5 or 10 years after 70, and that's not strange. Don't ever give up and quit because of that. Don't do it. Your eternal life is at stake. You put your faith in the invisible God. And what does that God tell us that his main reward is for all of us, the basic reward for everybody? One thing, the resurrection from the dead. It's not eternal life in this flesh. So most of us will die, those of us who are past 60, I suppose, but... There is the resurrection from the dead. That's our basic promise. Everybody gets that and it's eternal life in God's kingdom. Then beyond that, of course, it depends on our works, whether over five cities or ten cities or a whole nation or a whole continent or maybe a whole, you know, a whole galaxy, as we say, and God's family later on. We don't know. So we want to have faith and trust that God is fair, that God is right, that God is there. He will never give up on us, and we will never give up on Him. So we want to really believe that with all of our hearts. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And we've got to study the Bible, number one, to grow in faith. We need to meditate on all these things and think these things through. We've got to pray and pray with all of our heart. Remember how God tells us that he wants us to put our hearts in our prayers. One place Mr. Armstrong used to mention from the Moffat translation, Hebrews, I mean, um, Hosea 7, verse 14. So many places in the Bible tell us where to put our hearts in our prayers. And then fasting. How many of you use the tool of fasting? Three, five times a year, or if you're younger and in good health, I'd recommend it once a month as I did for decades to fast once a month, take no food, no water, and simply use that time to seek God, to study.
pray, meditate, and draw close to God during that period of time, seeking God and asking God for understanding and asking Him for faith and courage, faith and courage beyond what you've ever had before, and for the love of God, to love God with all your heart and strength and mind, and to love your neighbor, to genuinely love one another, to lay down your lives for one another and for all human beings, to have that attitude, ask God for that. That doesn't come naturally. Some people are hail fellows, well met, and they have their circle of friends. They're good to their buddies, but they're not necessarily good to anyone else. We need to try to be good to everybody and have the big picture to love every human being made in God's image. So we need to fast and seek God. I want to give you a couple more points beyond what I normally do. And another thing is to study the creation. Maybe Mr. Ames will touch on that next week, but I understand they had a wonderful creation week group up there this past uh, week in Cincinnati and went to the Creation Museum. And Dr. Fall's son, Brian Fall, apparently gave a wonderful sermon, talked about a certain nerve running down here and there beyond the heart and back up to the head again. And, and the, the scientists used to make fun of that, thought that was a strange accident of uh, evolution. And yet now they've come to realize that it's very important that that nerve does that. There's always a purpose for things. And once people figure it out, they used to make fun of God's command to circumcise little boys. And now they realize that if they don't circumcise the little boys in certain parts of the earth, especially Africa where they've had more problems, it can actually save millions, millions of lives. They see how important it is. How important it is. Male circumcision, it wasn't some crazy ritual of ancient Israel, had a tremendous importance that Almighty God do that before the scientists came along and figured it out. God says, circumcise your son on the eighth day. And some of the modern, well, it doesn't make any difference, but the scientists have proved that on the eighth day, the blood thinning part of the, of the little boy is less than any other time. And therefore, it's safer to circumcise him at that point. There are other things that enter in they found out more recently. And so God Almighty knew that. And the scientists, as this one book came out, uh, written by a medical doctor, the medical profession figured that out. Abraham knew that. But the medical profession figured that out 3,500 years late. <laughs> they were 3,500 years late in figuring that out. God had that in His Word for a reason. He knew those things in advance. Again, that ought to show you there's a real God. Have faith in that God. Have faith in that God. That God is very real. So study the creation. And I would advise all of you, especially young people who haven't done it very much, spend all the time you can out in creation. I wish I'd had all my children do that more. I should have done it more, but I did it much more than most kids do today because it was just the way we did. We were out running around the streets of Joplin and out on our bicycles. We had no television. We had no Internet. We were outside running around all day long, day after day after day after year, out in the sunshine and throw flying kites from the top of the chat piles, as we called them, and playing out in open fields and under the sky. If you look at the creation... And you're around the creation, it became, you become more normal, frankly. And they find that people that are closer to nature are more normal. And they can see the big picture more easily. God is more real. The more people are locked into modern computers or they're staring at a screen or they're playing with television and seeing all kinds of rotten, foul images coming out of the ideas, out of the brains of young smart alecks in Hollywood cooking up the latest sexy, violent show they could come up with to shock people. They're watching the, the message of Satan the devil. And out of creation, they're seeing the birds fly in heaven and they sort of see the sun rise and set and they see things happening. And all day long, all day long, the summers I was working up in Kansas in the wheat fields, you just had that, that natural thing. In the years I worked in the woods in Oregon, felling trees, and you, it makes the creation more real. Spend time out in nature, study nature, study the creation, and God will become more real. Another thing is to study prophecy. Try to go through Bible prophecy a lot. That's one thing that helped me a lot when I came to college. My Methodist minister never preached on prophecy. He hardly even mentioned the idea. 
He didn't understand it, obviously. But when I came to Master College, Mr. Armstrong used to open up Daniel, and he'd go through Daniel 6, 7, 8, and 9, and he got through Daniel 11 and the whole thing, and he'd reread it from Rawlinson's Ancient History and other books about how this did that and showed how this whole thing came together. It's amazing. He used to have two-and-a-half-hour sermons. If I preach a two-and-a-half-hour sermon to you, you'd all get up and walk out, I imagine. But we, we used to just stay right there. The normal service time, and I'm not exaggerating, before God, the normal set time for services in those days was 1.30 to 4.30, three hours. And there was no sermonette at first. My second year in college, Herman Hay and Raymond Cole started to give some sermonettes. The third year in college, Raymond McNair and I and some others began to give some sermonettes. But then it was just Mr. Armstrong and the announcements that his daughter Beverly would play the violin or sing, and, and uh, I should say his, his brother would play the violin and, and Beverly would sing, and that was it. And then he would run overtime, and sometimes the service ended up being three and a half or four hours, and we'd just stay right there. We learned a lot. Our bottoms got sore after a while, but we learned a lot. And we weren't used to the TV attention time, so we were used to sitting a little bit longer than many of you are today. So learn to study. Try to be deeper. Study prophecy and see how God prophesied specifically about what was going to happen at the ancient city of Tyre. And it happened right down to the great details. It happened to ancient Egypt. It wasn't prophesied to be totally destroyed, but it contrasts to Tyre with prophesied to be brought down but continue. And all these other details of what's happened in prophecy. And you've heard me describe how I saw it and how it affected me. Hearing Mr. Armstrong in person, as I had a chance to do over in England in 1954, and talking about if you British people don't repent and turn to God, he's going to take away your sea gates. He's going to take away your empire. There will be no more British empire. And just that thing after thing after thing that began to happen. And it's been happening ever since. He said later on in the 60s and 70s, he said the nations of Eastern Europe are going to get out from under the Russian boot. It does look like the Russians will pull out now, he said. Hundreds of thousands of Russian soldiers and tanks were there. But sure enough, in the winter of 1989 and 1990, they just suddenly pulled out, and one after the other after the other, those nations of Eastern Europe got free, and the Berlin Wall did come down, which Mr. Arms prophesied way ahead. He didn't make it happen. He died before it happened. But he said it would happen ahead of time, and he was the only minister who said that. Why? Because he understood this book. He had faith that God would do what he would said. There would be a two-legged beast. And he knew that, that the eastern leg of the beast had to have several nations. It didn't have them at that time. So study prophecy. As you see, big, huge things affecting hundreds of thousands of people in different nations happening. It makes God real. It makes God real. And you can have faith in the invisible God. Number seven... Learn to help you develop faith. Exercise faith. Try specifically to say, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to tithe. Don't steal from God. Tithe to God. Honor your Creator. Have faith in God. Have faith in God in the way you train your children. Have faith in God in the way you treat your wife. You wives have to have faith in God in the way you treat your husband. Your husband is not perfect. I know that. There's never been a perfect husband in human history except Christ is going to be our husband someday, but he's not now. But you honor your husband and you obey him as if within God's will. That's hard for some wives, but you have to put your faith and trust in God. You have to put your faith and trust in God in every aspect of your life. Learn to trust in God in every single phase and facet of your life and walk with God through faith that God knows what He says, and He means what He says, and that He you put your trust in the fact that that is real and that's going to work out the right way in every phase of your life. So you do those seven things. Study, meditate, pray, fast, study the creation. And number six, study prophecy, how real God is and intervening. And number seven, Exercise faith. Use faith. Walk by faith in every part of your life. You will grow in faith. And you really need to do that. It's so important. Turn back to Romans 14 now, brethren. Romans chapter 14. 
Paul writes here, verse 21, It is good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine nor to do anything by which your brother is stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Don't upset others by going into a Southern Baptist teetotaler and suddenly trying to bring in a big bottle of wine or a bunch of beer. You know, I mean, you don't need to push that right in their face. Be careful how you do. Do you have faith? You know it's okay. Have it to yourself before God. It's all right for you to do it in the privacy, but not in a way that hurts others. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. In other words, you've got to prove it's okay and then be sure of that. But he who doubts, if you doubt something, is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. And here's the key part right here, brethren. Listen, for whatever is not from faith is sin. Brethren, this is a secondary definition of sin. The basic definition of sin, of course, is 1 John 3, 4. Sin is. 1 John 3, verse 4. Sin is the transgression of the law, the breaking of God's law, the Ten Commandments. And reading through the whole book of 1 John, you can realize he's definitely talking about all ten of the commandments. Breaking them is sin. But then... Whatever is not of faith is sin. Why? Because that's, of course, breaking some of the commandments too. Because if you go against what you believe, you are then going against your Creator. You are indirectly, and perhaps not realizing it, having another God before the true God. You've got to do what you believe. And even if what you believe at the moment is wrong, God will forgive you for that. Paul killed the Christians. And yet he became one of the greatest apostles of all time because when he realized it, he quit. He quit. You've got to act on what you know and have faith in that. Don't compromise. But be willing to prove the truth. Be willing to be corrected by the Bible. But act on faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. If you constantly compromise, if you know that you're drinking too much and you keep right on drinking too much, that is sin. If you know that you should not be watching these certain kinds of movies on television or playing these certain computer games that just get into killing and violence and people being blown to bits all the time, that bombards your mind with all that corruption. If you know that's wrong, it's sin to do it. If you know that lusting after women, you look at pretty girls going by and say, boy, look at that, you know, and you dwell on that in your minds, that's sin. You must, it's okay to realize girls are pretty, I'm 84 years old. I know they're pretty more than you do. I'd have been around longer. <laughs> and God made them that way. All of us men are very grateful for our female companions. But young men have all this, this uh, stuff going through them, you know, this energy, sexual energy, and they're liable to this be mentally undressing women, thinking about them and thinking about them. And God had made that where that could be a temptation. That's sin to dwell on that. You're lusting then. You're not just saying, well, this is a pretty girl. You're lusting. And that is sin. And so whatever is not a faith, you know you shouldn't be doing that. You know you shouldn't be allowing yourself to get mad at someone who crosses you. I'll punch him in the nose. You're thinking about it. I remember when I was first converted, I'd been in some uh, Hollywood movie. I don't think it was a real awful movie, but it had some violence in it. And this young man turned out to be Mike Fazell's uncle named Paul Smith and he and I came out of the theater there on Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena and I remember stepping out in the movie and there had been some violence in the movie and of course I'd been in boxing in high school and some guy kind of banged against me as we were walking out and I turned and I almost hit him right there just thought, you know I just thought he meant that and then I thought oh I'm supposed to be a Christian what a revelation <laughs> I'm supposed to be a Christian I'm not supposed to think that way but he just banged against me extra hard and I think he stumbled or something those things come on you quickly if you're carnal. And I was still mainly carnal. I was just beginning to be converted. So you've got to watch out for those things and not allow yourself to do those things. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And that's a basic definition of sin. Don't water down your faith. Put your trust in God. If you don't, you'll end up sinning in many different ways. Turn now, brethren, back to Psalm 37. 
psalm, if you would, chapter 37, one of the most beautiful psalms in the Bible. Paul writes, I mean David writes, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down. Brethren, they're going to be gone, these people out here strutting around, or these people that are going to be beating up on us later. They won't be around forever. They'll be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the eternal and do good. That's the thing. Learn to put your faith and trust in God. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart. He'll bless you. He'll guide you over all. He'll have trials with it, but He'll certainly be good to you. Commit your way to the eternal. Trust in Him and He will bring it to pass. Put your faith and trust in God, He tells you over and over. Notice verse 23 now, brethren, of this same chapter. The steps of a good man are ordered by the eternal, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the eternal upholds him with his hand. I have been young and am now old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. His descendants are blessed with him. So that's it. God always takes care of his people. Now notice, brethren, also, uh, you turn down to verse uh, 33, Psalm 37, verse 33 here. And um, read this part here. He says, The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he's judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way. And he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you'll see it. I've seen the wicked in great power, he said. The wicked in great power strutting around. And, of course, he says, uh, I better not read all this. I've got so much time. But let's turn to verse 39. But the salvation of the righteous is from the eternal. He is their strength in time of trouble. The eternal shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them. Why? He will save them because they trust in Him. God loves someone. God Almighty, your Father, loves people who put their trust in Him, who know He's there, who love Him enough to trust in Him and know that He's going to take care of them and have that back-and-forth feeling of love and trusting, constant relationship with their Creator. He loves those who trust in Him. So we want to really understand that. Turn now, if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 now at this point. And uh, I want to begin reading here in verse 7. Revelation 21 and verse 7. Here at the end of the whole Bible, God is telling us something very important. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. You've got to overcome yourself, overcome the world, overcome Satan. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But notice, the cowardly, the people are always afraid. They can't put their trust in God. Oh, God's going to let this happen, and I can't trust God, and this is going to go wrong. We have that attitude all the time. The cowardly, unbelieving Think about it. God looks, puts that right in with some awful things. Those who are unbelieving, they just won't trust God. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers. He lumps them right in with murders. Sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Wow. Those who are cowardly and unbelieving. Please don't be cowardly and unbelieving. A trial is coming. Terrible trials are going to come. You will stand alone someday in some trial. And you've got to know that God, the invisible God, is there and that He is your Father and He will take care of you. You've got to know and know that you know that, brethren. Let's go back to something we usually use at the Days of Unleavened Bread. But I want to use it here as part of the Bible as a whole back in Exodus 14. Exodus 14. And I'll just tell you most of the story. You know it. 
Here the Israelites had already started out of Egypt. They finally were rejoicing and they thought, wow, we're finally free. But then Pharaoh said, uh-oh, we let them get away. These slaves got away and he came after them. And in verse 10, Pharaoh drew near with all his armies, you know, and the children of Israel lifted up their eyes. Behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid and cried out. And they said to Moses, because there are no graves in Egypt, See, the attitude of many they got to begin to blame God's minister. What's wrong? You're letting us get in trouble. The way of God is too hard. Moses said, verse 13, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which it will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you've seen today, you will see them again no more forever. Pretty strong. You'll see them no more forever. Then the Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Eternal said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. So he told them to go forward and go right down into the middle of the Red Sea. And you know the story. God supernaturally never done that before in human history. Something new. He parted the sea literally where the sea was like a wall on each side. It's an amazing thing. The children of Israel, it says in verse 29, had walked on the dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall on their right and on their left, a literally wall of water, tons of water up here. Brethren, when the walls came in and crushed the Egyptians, it is that they slowly drowned. Probably their ribcage just burst. Tons of, of weight came in and just crushed them. Most of them died instantly. So the Eternal saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Eternal had done in Egypt. God is going to do a great work through us if we put our faith and trust in God. We're going to have more power. We're going to have impact on the world. But then there's going to be great persecution and trials. Then the final thing is going to be that God will intervene and he'll take those who are really faithful to a place of safety. And then you will hear that final trumpet. A great trumpet blast echoing around the world. Da, 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 da. We don't know how it's going to sound. I know that. And people, wow. And suddenly some of us will say, lift off, lift off. And we'll feel our bodies going up. And tears will come down our face if we're still human enough to have tears. We've made it. There will be a good thing. There will be a good outcome in the end. There always is for those who put their faith and trust in God. So Israel saw that great work which the Eternal had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Eternal. At that point they finally had an awe of God. And believed the Eternal and His servant Moses. So brethren we need to have that awe of God. We need to know that God is real. And we need to put our faith and trust in that God and walk and live by faith and know that we must not ever turn aside. We must not have an evil heart of unbelief. We must put our faith and trust in God no matter what happens and never ever turn aside.